0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Hey church. Great to be with you again on another Sunday, Lord's day. And thank you so much for taking part of your day to dedicate to the Lord to recommit afresh this week, your life uh, to God. Uh, We're continuing today our study in Mark's gospel. If you turn your Bibles to the gospel of Mark chapter 10, the gospel of Mark chapter 10 and a message I've entitled garden marriage, garden marriage. So we're going to talk about marriage today from uh, Mark chapter 10. But before we uh, get into the word today, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. First of all, Uh, I want to continue to invite you to our study through the book of Genesis uh, that we're releasing on Tuesdays, but that of course you can watch or listen to at any time. Uh, This week we'll be picking up our study in Genesis chapter 38 uh, and following, and I would love to have you join us there. Last week, Pastor Manny taught a great word from Matthew chapter 5, which I'd encourage you to go back on the Calvary podcast or YouTube channel, wherever you get Calvary streams, and listen to or watch that message. But please join in on that study through the book of Genesis. I think it will upbuild you and will be greatly edifying uh, for your life. I also wanted to double back and make sure to remind you that Last Sunday, if you missed it, I gave a bit of an update about reopening and what that will look like for us as a church, and that at this point, uh, we still see a way forward in being compliant with the governing authorities. I know that for many of us, this isn't a a thing that we like, isn't a thing that we uh, want to do, desire to do, and for many of us, it's really not even something that makes a lot of sense to us uh, any longer. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, many of us are realizing we just can't do this forever. But on the other hand, the virus is there. It does exist. And this is what the governing authorities have asked all large gatherings to do. And of course, our church is part of that. So we're trying to be respectful, healthy, wise, but still move forward with our gatherings so we have this the online gathering which we'll continue to provide for you uh, but we're also working hard to meet live on sunday mornings together right now we're meeting at 9 and 11 and i just wanted to tell you the online gathering that there is plenty of room for you should you choose to come and visit either in your car in the drive-in zone or uh, seated out on the grass or under the trees Uh, wherever you'd like to be able to gather and corporately worship together uh, with God's people. There is room for you. It seems at this point that our church is maybe about 50-50 with about half of us uh, watching online and about half of us coming live and in the flesh each Sunday. And so uh, if you want to take a Sunday to come on out, we'd uh, love to have you and, and invite you Uh, To do so, I also wanted to mention that we are going to, uh, we are taking a hard look with our Calvary kids team. For you parents that are out there and are hesitant to come to the live gathering uh, because uh, you're afraid that your kids just aren't going to do that well in that kind of environment. First of all, I just want to say it's been such a blessing having the kids present. Uh, something about being outside—any noise that they make—it just dissipates into the air. It doesn't bounce off any walls, so it really isn't that distracting. Uh, but beyond that, it's just great to see all the generations together uh, worshiping the Lord. And our services are about an hour in length, uh, so you know many of the kids have been able to, to to do it and make it through that time. But if you are a parent who is waiting, for the church to have some form of children's ministry, Calvary Kids, back open in order to come on out. Well, we are investigating that right now. We want to, as we've been saying this whole time, do as much as the governing authorities recommend, nothing more, nothing less. And so we're making sure that we're doing as much as we're allowed to do during this season. And of course, there are all kinds of precautions and things you have to do in this COVID era in order to have children and care for children but we think there might be some things that we can do so pray for us because uh, we're investigating that uh, during uh, this season but i also just wanted to say to you guys that the church is doing really well Uh, i'm very proud of the way that you all have responded to this season the way our staff and pastors have responded to this season and thank you to those of you who have continued to partner with us financially the lord is Providing all year long. He has taken care of us. He has provided for the church. And uh, for that, we greatly rejoice and uh, are so, just so glad to continue on in the work of the Lord together. Okay, today, let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Now, when sin entered the world, the relationship between men and women was capsized. I don't know if you've noticed this. You know, God created his world, of course, and he put man and woman in his world to cultivate and subdue the earth that he gave to them. And we were to do this together, men and women together. But when the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, death was introduced into the planet. Now, death was not immediate, nor was it only physical. Uh, It was also spiritual, emotional, and relational. Life, because of sin, ceased to work as God intended. And as you scan back through human history, you'll see that this brokenness is often displayed in the way that various cultures and societies throughout history have treated the institution of marriage. But God's people, we've always understood our world through the lens of the fall. You know, the, 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 the brokenness that has been caused by sin. When we see a broken human institution, we suspect that sin is at the core of the problem. So when we see dysfunctioning schools or when we see failed states or when we see depressed economies, we look for the root sins. The same should be said for the Christ followers attitude about marriage. Broken marriages, of course, abound in the world that we live in. We have rapidly become in the United States and in the Western world, a divorce culture. We're swimming in marital dysfunction and its effects are ever present. And every family, every workplace, every school has to deal with divorce's impact on our modern world. But the believer does not look at all of that and come to the conclusion that it's marriage that is broken. Instead, we know that it's human beings, us, we are broken by sin. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can restore us, can revive us, can rebuild us. In Jesus, we find forgiveness and grace, and he rebuilds our lives. Since he does, marriage, because of the gospel, it has a chance. It can become, by the design of God and the aid of the Holy Spirit, something beautiful and something Good. Now we don't need to be a people as Christians who worship marriage, nor do every one of us need to be married. But we can all, as God's people, honor marriage and have hope for what it can become in Christ Jesus. So today, let's consider first how sin broke marriage, but secondly, how the gospel restores hope. And number three, Let's then apply the grace of God to our own situations. So let's look at this first section. Number one, how sin broke marriage. It says in verse one that Jesus left there, left Capernaum and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them and Pharisees came up to him. And in order to test him, asked is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them in verse three, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Okay, this passage, this section begins with Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. That's what it means in verse one when it says that he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. He's heading to the cross. But out there in the wilderness of the Jordan, he began preaching again to the crowds. And as he taught, some Pharisees, it says in verse two, came up to test him. They asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, don't be deceived. This was not an honest question from the Pharisees. One way or another, they were determined to trap Jesus. And here, they were inviting Jesus into one of the hot theological debates of the day. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Jesus, for his part, told them to go back to the Bible. He said in verse three, what did Moses do? command you? What's the Bible say? What did the law say? Now, in response, it's interesting. They quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 24. In that passage, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses told the people of Israel that when they divorced each other, they needed to write certificates of divorce. The paperwork was designed as a way to protect the woman enabling her to marry someone else after her husband decided he was finished with her. And the original couple could not remarry in the future once she herself got remarried. So the Pharisees quoting from Moses said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They all knew this from Deuteronomy 24, It's what they thought Deuteronomy 24 taught, that Moses allowed for us to do this. Now, though Deuteronomy 24 did give the people a procedure to follow in the case of divorce, it did not encourage divorce or even allow divorce like they suspected. The procedure of Deuteronomy 24 was created Merely as a way to make divorce a more thor- formal and thoughtful process. You see, as a nomadic and tribal people who had left Egypt and were wandering on their way to the, to the promised land, a lack of structure was making their relationships chaotic. People were divorcing and then remarrying left and right, often to their original spouse. And there was no procedure for these divorces to take place, they were happening all too easily. And you can imagine the chaos that was unfolding amongst God's people. Without a process to follow, a people infected by lust or anger or laziness would give up on their marriages way too quickly. So Moses made them write certificates of divorce. You know, at least with some paperwork, it would slow things down a little bit and provide a semblance of order. Now, by the time Jesus came onto the scene, the people had formed two camps in their understanding of Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, verse one, Moses said that they could write a certificate of divorce if they found some indecency in their wives, some indecency. So everybody debated, what does that mean? Some indecency. Well, two main camps formed. One camp was led by a rabbi named Shamii. Uh, he was very conservative with his definition. To people in his camp, the indecency meant some major sexual immorality. The other camp was led by a rabbi named Hillel And they were very liberal in their interpretation. To them, indecency meant any disapproval justified a husband's divorce of his wife. And in a sinful and broken, male-dominated society, this lenient view became the popular view. Now you can easily see the error of the Pharisees. They took Moses' words as permission to divorce for nearly any reason. Uh, But Moses said what he did because of their hardness of heart because of their stubbornness. That's why Jesus said in verse five, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. They had taken Moses's words to mean that they all had the permission, uh, to divorce their wives for almost any reason. But Jesus told them that they missed the point. Moses said what he had said because they were so hard-hearted. In other words, Jesus was able to look past the surface and see the root sin. Their stubbornness meant that they wanted what they wanted and would find any loophole to get it. The Israelites during Moses' time bent towards sin. And so they required regulation. Now we must recall this. As I've been saying in the introduction, sin is what breaks marriage. The conclusion that many in our day have come to is that marriage is an idea that has run its course. You know, right now in our society here in the United States, a record share of grown adults have never married. And there are various reasons for that, economic reasons, goals that these individuals have, demographics, all of that contributes to this statistic. But most generations are deceived about marriage. Many of them thinking that cohabitation has no negative effect on society. So because of that, cohabitation is on the rise. So fewer people are marrying. These are some of the solutions that the world proposes when they see difficulty in marriage. Extreme solutions are also proposed. I'm sure you've uh, noticed this. Uh, Programs and curriculums and movements often have a goal of dismantling the traditional family. And this is often motivated by the belief that marriage is a broken and man-made institution. Jesus, though, knew that it's people that are broken, not marriage. It was the hard-heartedness that killed them in Moses' day and is hurting us in ours. So if the gospel could have its way, then the heart can be dealt with, and there is hope for marriage after all. Now, we'll get to that in a moment, but let this thought settle in your mind. The fracture and pain in the family have been caused by, by the effects of the fall sin has done its dastardly work and the aftershocks of broken marriage are felt to the ends of the earth fatherlessness distrust of other people suspicion promiscuity gender confusion poverty crime depression anxiety Many of these things have their roots in or are made worse by broken marriage. Sin has done its work to disrupt our world. But let's go on to see how the gospel number two restores marriage. The gospel restores marriage. You see, Jesus said the reason that this happened, that Moses gave you this certificate was your hardness of heart, it's a sin issue within. But then he went on in verse six and said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate now of course the pharisees they went back to the book of deuteronomy when they thought about marriage but jesus here goes all the way back to genesis to the first moments of human existence the book of genesis was the foundational text that deuteronomy was built upon there in the garden on the sixth day it says in verse six that god made them male and female. Now, Jesus, of course, loved the book of Deuteronomy. He was interested in it. It is, by the way, the book that he quoted from to combat the temptation that Satan brought against him uh, in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. But the Genesis passage took precedent. There in the garden, we discover God's original intention. It's something beautiful, this original marriage And something that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the constant ministry of the Spirit can continually restore in any marriage that submits itself to Christ. That's my way of saying Jesus wants to bring the marriages of Calvary Monterey back to the Garden of Eden, and he can by his blood. It's a vision that every one of us, married and unmarried, needs to have of what marriage is. The first thing I want you to see is found there in verse six, a gospel redeemed marriage can faithfully represent God. Why do I say that? Well, all of us, according to Genesis one and two, are made in the image of God. And Jesus alluded to that in verse six. He said that God made us in his image. He made us male and female. Now, of course, you know, as you read through the Bible, that God refers to himself in the masculine. But when God took from Adam's side to create Eve, God was taking part of his own image that he deposited into Adam, out of Adam, and putting it into Eve. Therefore, Though God reveals himself as father, we can know that mothers specifically and women in general reflect the image of God just as much as men reflect the image of God. Men can only reflect part of God's image. Well, women must image the other part of who God is. And Jesus reminds us of this in the context of marriage. You see, he's showing us that in a gospel-saturated marriage, the couple becomes excellent examples of what God is like. The man is urged to become more fully man. while the woman becomes more fully woman. Together, they represent God on earth. God is the king, and he's far away, it feels. But his representative images are here to remind us of what he is like. That's what we are as God's people. In a good marriage, each spouse will encourage the total and complete flourishing of the other, the other spouse. Each has felt served by Christ. They know what Jesus has done for them, so they work hard to lay down their lives for the other. They cheer for each other to develop into a person that God has destined them to be male and female they flesh out god's image in the way they interact with each other but jesus went on and added in verse 7 from the genesis passage therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife a quote from genesis chapter 2. okay in this ideal garden marriage that jesus is bringing us back to Great love is abandoned for an even stronger, greater love. You see here, what he's saying is that the closest bond that a man has ever known is his bond with his mother and with his father. But when the woman comes along, love develops in his heart. And though he loves his parents, a greater love overtakes him And he's compelled to pursue his bride. He leaves his parents and is joined to his bride. And this love, the kind that leaves everything else and prioritizes the marriage, must be allowed, listen to me now, to continually grow. You see, many men and women are tempted to prioritize a different love over the relationship that they have. Sometimes even the relationship with their own parents. Hey, don't let your parents into your marriage. They don't belong there. But many others become tempted with new loves as the years pass by careers or hobbies or personal goals can become a wildfire that forces you to to neglect your first marital love. So Christ honoring marriages, will continue to prioritize their love for one another, never taking that relationship for granted. They make the time for this all-important human relationship. Uh, By the way, if you're a single man who is watching this today and you would like to be married someday, I'd encourage you, don't be scared of this love that I'm talking about. I know many of you are nervous that you'll make the wrong decision. And some of you are afraid to commit your life to someone else. But love, especially one fueled by the love that Christ has shown to you, can help you overcome and dedicate yourself to one woman. Okay, back to Jesus' words, though. Notice that he added on to this concept by continuing the quote in verse 8. He said, The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, when Adam and Eve came together, what Jesus is pointing out is that God melded them into one. God saw them as one. Though Eve was still the woman and Adam was still the man, they were now united in the sight of God. Now, of course, we understand that a husband and wife, male and female, biologically complement each other. And their physical union does unify them to the other. This is one reason, by the way, that sexual activity before marriage is harmful. It blurs the lines of the relationship. It makes you, in a sense, one, but without a covenant or commitment to reflect your oneness. In marriage, however, sex is safe, because the oneness is not only sexual, but universal and total. Now Jesus championed this one flesh approach to marriage. Marriages tend to break down when people behave as two single individuals with distinct and separate goals. Too many women and men are running off attempting to find themselves when all they really need to discover is found inside their relationship with their spouse. When oneness is cultivated physically and financially and emotionally and spiritually and practically, the marriage will succeed. Okay. This oneness with your spouse, it must be cultivated. In addition to being passionate lovers, I believe husbands and wives ought to be best friends. In the song of Solomon, which is an intensely romantic song, The wife refers to her husband as her friend. You see, if you're married, you've got to learn how to be good friends together. Go out, do things together, listen to each other, learn about each other. Your spouse, if you're married, is an ever-changing, ever-developing creature. So find out what they're like today, right now. Talk about what God is showing you and hear what God is showing them. Be friends and cultivate your oneness now a word of advice for parents one of the best things you can do for your children is to prioritize your marriage they are not one flesh with you they need you and your spouse to live out the oneness that you possess together you know it's important for a child to be secure in the love of That their parents have for them, but they also need to be secure in the love that you have for their other parent. Now, Jesus concluded his teaching in verse nine by saying, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, this was Jesus's basic attitude about marriage. Don't let it end. If God worked a mystery and bonded the two into one, no person should ever try to separate them back into two. Don't mess with God's work, Jesus is, sh- is saying. You know, clergy often lead a marriage ceremony. I've stood before many couples and presided over their wedding. The church gathers at those ceremonies uh, to witness the couple's vows. And paperwork is then filed with the governing authorities. But God is the one who presides over every married couple. In other words, God is the tie that binds us together, not the government, not the church, but God. This view allows a person to see their marriage as an act of devotion, worship, obedience, and stewardship toward God. Let not man separate, Jesus said. Don't let a counselor or a friend or a new romance separate you from your spouse, if you're married. Don't talk yourself into it. God put you together, stay together. So, Jesus, He took us back to the original marriage. He took us back to the garden marriage. And His blood enables this kind of marriage. Sin broke marriage, but His gospel restores it and gives us hope. Okay, but in all this, we do need God's grace. So let's read our final section together. It says in verse 10, And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Okay, Jesus' words here are revolutionary in one sense because... He put men and women on equal footing with what he said. Uh, But his words are also stringent. You know, in this concluding little movement in the house, Jesus told his disciples that the one who departs, if they remarry another, they've committed adultery. God put, in other words, the original couple together. So to him, they're still one. And a new marriage is adultery in his sight. Matthew tells us that when the disciples heard this, they were overwhelmed by these words. They said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus responded to them in Matthew's gospel by telling them that some people, in response to the severity of these marriage commitments, will pursue a life of singleness for the kingdom of God. They'll devote themselves to their relationship with God and his people, all while carrying out the commandment to love and the commission to make disciples. Now, modern readers, of course, us today, we want to know if there are any exceptions to Jesus's rule. Now, I'm tempted not to answer That question today because Mark in his gospel didn't include any exceptions. And I think he's done this intentionally. I think it's his way of pointing towards the sobriety that we should have concerning our marriage vows. But in Matthew, Jesus twice pointed to sexual sin as a reason people can divorce. He didn't command it. Or demand it he allowed forgiveness to occur but it was an exception that Matthew records twice and Paul for his part added a provision of his own in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 he said that if a non-believing spouse departs or deserts the marriage the believing spouse is then free now, in addition to these two exceptions that you find in Matthew and in 1 Corinthians, there are also, of course, divorces that occurred before a person was a believer prior to their conversion. And we might also be wise to consider separation in instances where domestic abuse looms over the married couples home. But how can we respond to these stern statements of Jesus even with the exceptions that I just mentioned? Well, let me offer four suggestions as we close out together. First, as I already mentioned, some will respond by never marrying. You know, some will just look at their situation and say, you know, this is the best thing for me. You know, Jesus, of course, exemplified a single life Uh, that was devoted entirely to his father. And he taught that some would choose this kind of life because the demands of marriage were too high. Second, we should respond as a church by having a high view of marriage. You know, I realize that half our congregation, uh, our adult congregation, is unmarried. But whether you're married or unmarried, it's important for you to believe that God is active in marriages. He made the two one. And we should all have a sober view of marriage and work hard to support marriages in our church family. Third, we should respond by becoming a biblically sensitive people on these matters. You know, if you aren't sure, If a marriage or a divorce would be biblical, you should seek out your pastors or other competent believers to help you move through scripture for your situation. You should find out before you move forward. But fourth, we should respond by extending grace to our church community and beyond. You know, these are admittedly hard words that Jesus uttered. Many of us here today are divorced or remarried. And the odds are that many of those divorces and remarriages occurred outside the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's common for modern believers to ignore Jesus's teaching on marriage. And since we live in a divorce culture and our society isn't coming against divorce all that much these days, it's very easy to quit on a marriage. And for this, we need God's grace. Look, if you're living in an unbiblical marriage, you've got to receive God's grace and move on. You know, if it happened before Christ came into your life, know that you are forgiven in his sight and stick with the marriage you're in today. If it happened while you were in Christ, humbly lament what you have done in the past, accept his mercy and move forward in the marriage you are in today. And if it happened because you didn't know the word, you didn't know that you were prohibited from getting married again by scripture, Ask for his cleansing and move on in the marriage that you are in today. It's really all that we can do. And it is far better than having a defiant attitude that disregards God's words and says, I was right to do so. Instead, we should humbly move forward accepting God's mercy and God's grace. Remember, sin attacks marriage. But God invented marriage. And through the blood of Christ, marriage can get back to the garden. It can reflect God's image, be a demonstration of sacrificial love, and unify us to another in a powerful way. Let's seek the help of the Spirit in bringing each one of our marriages back to